I want to start this episode off with a disclaimer, if I may. Mental health is a very serious and very real issue to me. According to Johns Hopkins, about one in four adults aged 18 and over suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. Many of those suffer from more than one mental disorder at any given time. This episode and the things discussed are based on my love for insane asylums, both for how they're presented in Hollywood for entertainment purposes, as well as the local mental institutions whose stories, both fiction and non, fed my curiosities and fascination growing up. The Haunted Asylum is synonymous with Halloween, and if you've listened to other episodes of mine, you know I love this month more than any other. So if you're interested in this topic like I am, please enjoy this episode. And if you're struggling at all with mental disorders, find someone to talk to. You aren't alone. If a book, television show, or movie is made and the plot has anything to do with insanity, whatever genre, chances are that I'll give it a go. Some of my all-time favorite movies are centered around a mental institution or insane asylum. One of my favorite shows ever, House, was on the air for eight seasons. I've watched each season at least three or four times. My favorite season is season six, where we watch the lead character, Dr. Gregory House, become a resident of a psychiatric hospital. Movies about insane asylums have been popular since the 1940s. Alfred Hitchcock's 1945 film, Spellbound, features Ingrid Bergman as a psychiatrist at Green Manor's Mental Asylum. The new head of Green Manor's is a character played by Gregory Peck, who, we find out later, has some secrets. The Snake Pit was released in 1948 and tells the story of a woman named Virginia Cunningham, who wakes up in a state-run insane asylum and can't remember how she got there. The 1960s gave us the classic Shock Corridor, which is a film about an ambitious journalist who is determined to win a Pulitzer Prize by solving a murder committed in a lunatic asylum. It was witnessed by three inmates, whom the police can't get to talk. Can he earn the patient's trust by becoming a patient himself? I've enjoyed Girl Interrupted, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Sucker Punch, and The Joker. The horror fan in me loved Shutter Island, Session 9, Gothica, Don't Say a Word, Unsane, The Uninvited, and The Ward. It will come as no surprise that another one of my favorite television shows is American Horror Story. Favorite season? You guessed it, Asylum. Just over seven years ago, director Robert Legato began shooting a new movie not too far from my home. The state of Michigan at the time was offering incentives to movie studios, so we were seeing an uptick in movies being filmed in and around Detroit. The movie was called Eloise and it was based on the psychiatric hospital of the same name in the city I was living in at the time, Westland, Michigan. The film starred Chase Crawford of Gossip Girl fame, Eliza Dushku from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Robert Patrick, who you may know as T-1000 in Terminator 2, or John Doggett from X-Files. A lot of the movie was actually filmed at Eloise, and despite the lack of A-list names, locals were hoping for a decent movie when all was said and done. When the movie was released in February of 2017, critics were not pleased. The Hollywood Reporter called it an incoherent, time-hopping paranormal tale, 
and actually offered condolences to the staff of Eloise, the New York Times declared it a horror movie of such ineptitude that it invites sympathy for even its least gifted participants. Variety used words like generic horror opus and empty. It has an unimpressive 4.6 out of 10 on IMDb and an 11% positivity rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it didn't really work out so well. But it's fun to pick out places I know in some of the scenes. Anyway, the cruddy movie is not why we're here. The Asylum itself, and others like it, is. Episode 26, To Eloise, With Love. So what is it that makes these places such a great setting for a film? Why are these old hospitals and their inhabitants so fascinating? Perhaps it's how little we know about what really goes on inside a psychiatric hospital, mental institution, or insane asylum. Or maybe it's how little we truly understand about what happens in the human brain that we have no control over. Most of your organs work in the same manner as the person sitting in the car next to you. Your lungs help you breathe, your heart pumps the blood, stomach, liver, kidneys, etc. Yours hopefully do what mine do. But the brain, yours and mine, while they may look alike, think and behave differently. The function might be the same, but the output is very different. Now, I've been intrigued by the idea of insane asylum since I was young. Too young to have any of that be the reason I was so curious. So maybe for me, the draw had more to do with style or as my daughter would say, aesthetic. That's a trendy word now with the kids these days in the world of social media. My daughter has changed her room's aesthetic five times in the past year. The look of a giant, eerie building behind a fence with a sign that says, No Trespassing. Driving by it at night and seeing some of the rooms lit up and wondering what exactly was going on in there. Or a similar building that hasn't been open for 20 years and you hear about people sneaking in, but... You haven't been brave enough to do it yourself yet. There are so many unknowns about these types of places, and most of them no longer exist. Modern medicines, a better understanding of patients and symptoms, smaller facilities with more focused care, all of those things have eliminated the need. And while that's a good thing, it hasn't eliminated the curiosities people still hold or the feelings that an old insane asylum can stir up inside of you. So let's talk about one of those places that is both nearby to where I live and near and dear to my heart. In 1832, the Wayne County Poorhouse was founded. Originally, the site was located in Hamtramck, just two miles outside of Detroit. Within two years, the poorhouse's condition worsened and 280 acres of land was purchased in Nankin Township, just a two-day stagecoach right away. In 1839, 35 of the 146 residents at the Hamtramck building were transferred to the new Nankin Township location. The 111 who chose not to go did so because they were against moving to the, quote, awful wilderness. An A-frame building was put up to house the new inmates with a cookhouse built in the back. The new Wayne County Poorhouse was self-sufficient with its own police and fire departments, along with a railroad and trolley system. On the same grounds, they built a bakery, amusement hall, laundry facility, and power plant. There was a farm on the premises with dairy cows, pigs, a root cellar, tobacco curing building, and greenhouses. The number of residents continued to rise, and in 1872, the facility was renamed the Wayne County Almshouse. 
1886, the name was changed again to just the Wayne County House. Before 1894, institutions worked without post or railroad offices. This made receiving supplies and mail difficult. In May of 1894, the facility's superintendent made a motion to have a post office on the grounds. The postmaster general approved the location, but told them that new post offices needed shorter names and couldn't be close to anything else in the state to avoid confusion. A man named Freeman B. Dickerson was president of the board at the time. He'd also recently held the position of postmaster of Detroit. He offered up the name of his daughter, four-year-old Eloise. The name was submitted to Washington and approved, and by July of that year, the post office was established under the name of Eloise. As the population around the Detroit area grew, so did the institution. By the time the Great Depression rolled around in 1929, the number of patients had gone from its original 35 to right around 10,000 residents. Side note, perhaps the most famous resident to stay at Eloise was an African-American inventor named Elijah McCoy. His is a name not often found in history books, but Booker T. Washington recognized him as having produced more patents than any other black inventor up to that time. McCoy was born in Canada, but moved to Michigan as a young man. His first job in the Detroit area was a fireman and oiler at the Michigan Central Railroad. From his home in Ypsilanti, McCoy worked on improvements and inventions. One of his bigger inventions was an automatic lubrication device for steam engines. He secured the patent for that in 1872, and that was just one of 57 patents throughout his life that included a folding ironing board and lawn sprinkler. In 1922, he and his wife Mary were involved in a serious auto accident that killed Mary and left Elijah seriously injured. He battled those injuries until 1928 when he was sent to the Eloise Infirmary where he stayed until his death in 1929. Maybe you've never heard of him, but I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, the real McCoy. While there are some who will argue where that phrase came from, many believe that it started with Elijah McCoy. The expression is usually associated with something considered to be the real thing. It's believed that railroad engineers, when looking for a well-made oil drip cup, would make sure that their locomotive was fitted with the real McCoy system. So, as I was saying, by the time the Great Depression rolled through, Eloise was at its peak as far as residence. There were three main divisions of Eloise at the time. The Eloise Mental Hospital, the Eloise Infirmary, and the Eloise Sanatorium. In those days, a sanatorium was often used to house patients with long-term contagious diseases like tuberculosis. Tuberculosis generally attacks the lungs, and symptoms include chronic cough with blood-containing mucus, fever, night sweats, and weight loss. Before they had a name for the disease, people referred to TB as consumption due to the frequent weight loss. Thankfully, due to vaccines and a tuberculosis-fighting compound discovered in the late 1940s, TB slowed to a crawl in the United States. The disease still affects poorer countries and rural areas today. As you can imagine, there were a great many deaths taking place on the Eloise grounds. As I mentioned before, a complex the size of Eloise had to have its own police and fire stations, its own post office and power plant, so it only makes sense that it needed its own cemeteries as well. In 1892, plans were put into effect to pave Michigan Avenue, a 2,500-mile highway, also known as US-12, that runs from Detroit all the way to Washington. 
Because of construction, the hospital arranged with Catholic Bishop John Samuel Foley to relocate any bodies near the road to an island in the middle of the complex's reservoir. That new cemetery was one of three on Eloise grounds. Between 1910 and 1948, over 7,000 people were buried at Eloise's second of three cemeteries, an area of land on the southern end of the farm. It's noted that this cemetery was operated as a potter's field, meaning a place to bury poor and unclaimed dead at the public's expense. The dead in this case were mostly patients who died at the institution and had no known relatives or in some cases relatives who were unwilling or unable to pay to have them buried. If you go to those cemetery grounds today, you will see that the graves are marked only by numbered blocks. It should be noted that in many cases, inmates of Eloise were often the ones burying the dead. Also of interest is the fact that from the late 19th century to 1948, the Eloise cemeteries were often the victim of body snatchers. Cadavers were in high demand, especially amongst medical students at the nearby University of Michigan. Beginning in 1948, all unclaimed bodies were sent to the Wayne State University College of Medicine, and no further burials were made there. From the end of the Great Depression until the early 1980s, the population of Eloise slowly shrunk in numbers. The operation of the farm ceased in 1958, and a number of the larger psychiatric buildings were abandoned in 1973. The psychiatric division itself began shutting down operations in 1977, and any remaining patients were transferred out by 1982. The General Hospital, the last of the three hospital sections, closed in 1986. Today, only five of the 78 buildings and the Eloise Cemetery remain. The firehouse, power plant, commissary, and D buildings are intact. The fifth building, the bakery, was hit with arson last year. The cemetery has become a bit of a roadblock for Wayne County commissioners who would like to sell the land off. Typically, bodies need a relative's permission to be moved. Since many of the bodies inside the numbered grave sites remain unclaimed, relocating 7,000-plus bodies is difficult. If you were to drive by the cemetery now, you would find that it's fenced in and littered with no trespassing signs. Many people believe that both the cemetery and the D building, which was used by Wayne County up until 2016, are haunted. 7,000-plus unknown and potentially restless souls, records of doctors using inhumane treatments like hydrotherapy, shock therapy, and insulin therapy to treat patients, structures built in the late 1800s on what was undoubtedly Native American land. Well, if you've ever believed in spirits trapped on Earth, this is the place for you. Another hospital that is close to where I live now and almost completely gone is the Northville Psychiatric Hospital. In the 1940s, hospitals like Eloise were struggling with overcrowding and aging conditions. The area needed a new, modern facility, so construction began on what was originally called the Northville State Hospital. By 1952, the hospital was open for business, and patients from nearby state-run facilities in Pontiac, Kalamazoo, Ypsilanti, and Traverse City, along with the Eloise Asylum, were sent to Northville. Twenty years later, in 1972, the name was changed to Northville Regional Psychiatric Hospital. Originally, the over 400-acre property featured 20 buildings, including the easily recognizable giant nine-story complex, a steam power plant, laundry building, kitchen and bakery, indoor swimming pool, gymnasium, movie theater, bowling alley, employee quarters, and patient dormitories. It didn't take long for the Northville complex to catch up with everyone else in the overcrowding department. 
While it offered 650 beds, the patient population was routinely up around 1,000. The 70s were an awful time for mental health facilities, as cutbacks occurred throughout the state and country. A more common use of drug therapy was taking place as well around that time. In the early 80s, the Detroit News launched a series of investigative reports on the facility, where they claimed to find disturbing evidence that overcrowding led to people sleeping on cots in the gym, as well as heavy dosing of patients who had been left to stare out the window or watch television. Reporting also found evidence of numerous cases of assault, neglect, rape, and racism. The city of Northville itself also had to deal with escapes, sometimes on the average of almost two a day. By the 1990s, states were heading towards smaller, more personal centers for the mentally ill. Hospitals across the country were downsizing quickly or closing altogether. The final patient was escorted out of Northville through the front doors in May of 2003. When I was in high school, the grounds of the hospital were a sought-after destination for both the brave and mildly moronic. With it still being partially open in the 90s, getting onto the property was difficult. But I remember that my friends and I would often sit on Seven Mile Road right out in front of the largest complex and stare at the lit rooms. I'm not sure what we hoped to see, but it felt dangerous and mysterious at the time. Rumors were rampant of someone sneaking into the tunnels below the complex, a place where patients were transferred during bad weather, or friends being almost caught by hospital security in the haunted evil woods, as they were known. Since it shuttered its doors, it has become a frequent stop for ghost hunters, spray-paint artists, and thrill-seekers alike. It can come at a heavy cost, however. Northville police have made it abundantly clear that you will be arrested and or fined if you're caught trespassing. Nowadays, there isn't much left to trespass through. For the last 18 years, the property has been bought and sold and sold back. I'm still not sure what's to become of the land even today. When mental institutions first started out, the idea wasn't that patients should be treated or cured. The purpose was to get them away from the general public, even those in prison. No one knew what to do with someone experiencing schizophrenia or delusions. In the early days, hydrotherapy was the treatment du jour. It was said that cold water reduced agitation for someone going through a manic episode. People were typically submerged in a bath for hours at a time, mummified in wet wraps or hosed off with ice-cold water. If the water didn't work, then asylums would turn to restraints like straitjackets, manacles, waistcoats, and leather wristlets, often for the majority of a day. It was meant to keep patients safe from themselves, but was often used to control crowds in overpopulated hospitals. As psychiatry took shape in the early 1800s, thanks to folks like Benjamin Rush, things got weird fast. Although he didn't agree that insanity was caused by demonic possession, as many thought at the time, he still believed in antiquated treatments. It wasn't demons he wanted to let out, but tainted body fluids. He's known to have purged, blistered, vomited, and bled his patients. Oh, and he also signed the Declaration of Independence. Even in the early 1900s, people in high places within the mental health community thought that infections within the body led to mental illness. Rotting teeth were often pulled. Tonsils were removed. Parts of stomachs, small intestines, the colon. Any place where a nasty, psychosis-causing infection could take place. Shockingly, none of that worked and only seemed to speed up the rate of death inside asylums. In 1927, a Nobel Prize was given to a gentleman who believed that shooting up people with malaria-infected blood and inducing fever would cure schizophrenia. 
a lot of those poor folks died from malaria. Next up came the new phase in treatment, shock therapy. It started with insulin shock therapy, where high levels of insulin would be injected into a patient. The injections caused convulsions, followed by a coma. It was often performed on a patient dozens of times and typically led to amnesia. Apparently, this type of therapy sort of worked. Kind of. They used it for a while for all sorts of ailments. Causing amnesia was thought to make patients forget they were ill. Then came metrozole shock therapy. In the same way amnesia was supposed to eradicate mental illness, metrozole caused seizures. They figured that epilepsy and seizures would somehow shake any mental illness from your brain. Apparently, the drug also caused severe enough convulsions that many patients fractured their vertebrae. The Federal Drug Administration eventually revoked metrozole's approval and it stopped being used in the 1950s. Electroconvulsive shock therapy worked in a similar way to the others, but without all of the side effects. Well, most of the side effects. Well, no, different side effects. A patient contemplating or carrying out the act of suicide was a pretty high possibility after electroconvulsive shock therapy. In fact, Ernest Hemingway took his own life after just one treatment. Lobotomies were another often used choice in the 1940s. Crack open your skull, find the bad neural connections, damage them, and presto, no more bad thoughts or actions. Also, probably no more much of anything else either. Memories were erased, personalities changed, the twinkle in your eye dimmed. By the 70s, psychiatric medications had erased the use of most of these practices. Some had been around for a while, like opium and morphine, which proved to be very addictive, barbiturates, which just knocked you out, Chloral hydrate gave patients new and different psychotic episodes. But then Thorazine came around and seemed to really save the day. More antipsychotics like it followed, and things became a bit more humane for people suffering from mental illness. Hospitals and asylums like Eloise and Northville Psychiatric closed down, and patients were moved to smaller, more personal, less brutal places. If you want to learn more about Eloise, I would suggest checking out the Travel Channel show called Destination Fear. They're on Season 3 now, but back in Season 1, Episode 7, the team took a trip to Eloise. It really is said to be one of the most haunted places in the country. If you believe in that stuff. Like I do. The episode's description reads, The team begins to lose its grip on reality, as it's subjected to unexplained screams, slamming doors, and rampant poltergeist activity. As of the last few weeks, Eloise has opened its doors under new ownership. A company has turned it into a multi-million dollar, state-of-the-art, fully immersive, haunted attraction. It comes with all the new bells and whistles, including cold spark pyrotechnics and advanced projection mapping. Every weekend so far is sold out, and I've read that the wait time can be three to four hours, even with reserved tickets. That's too bad. I would go if tickets were available. Maybe. I'm brave enough, I think. Wait. It says here that the actors are allowed to touch guests. No thank you. I'm out. A Detroit News opinion piece came out recently that suggests what the company is doing is a slap in the face to all the people that struggled and fought their demons inside those walls. I do see that point of view, but I also see a company giving curious folks a chance to walk the halls of a building they've always been curious about. In an unused building that was already spooky and possibly, well, probably, haunted. And if it keeps the building from being knocked down, I'm all for it. What are your thoughts about psychiatric hospitals and insane asylums? Do you live near a spooky one? Let me know. 
visit curator135.com or find me on any of the social media sites. I'm also going to post a ton of amazing vintage photos of Eloise. Check it out. Don't forget that the shop is open, where you can snag a Northville Psychiatric Athletic Department tee and other cool show-related shirts and merchandise that I designed. My dad bought a Norway-themed mug and t-shirt. If it's good enough for him, it's certainly good enough for you. Thanks for the support, Dad. And thank you guys for listening. If you've enjoyed this or any of my other episodes, please leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. Happy Halloween and 143.